So it's all here. The story of our time with the Barkov. That was President Lyndon Baines Johnson upon the dedication of his presidential library in 1971. Since then, the library has played host to the biggest names and best minds of our day who have helped to tell the story of our times through candid, revealing conversations with the Barkov. This podcast delivers them straight to you. Welcome to With the Barkoff. I'm Mark Updegrove. Today we talk to acclaimed author Larry Tai. His latest book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, examines the pernicious legacy of the notorious senator from Wisconsin, whose anti-communist campaign in the early 1950s, built largely on falsehoods and fabrication, led to division and disunity that seem very familiar in today's America. His other books include Satchel, a biography of baseball legend Satchel Paige, and Bobby Kennedy, The Making of a Liberal Icon. Larry Ty, welcome to With the Barco. Great to be there with you. I'm going to start with a, a passage that you write in the, in the prologue. This is a book about America's love affair with bullies. The uniquely American strain of demagoguery has pulsed through the nation's veins from its founding days. Now that we at last have access to the full sweep of the records on Joe McCarthy's transgressions, we can see that his rise and reign also go a long way toward explaining the astonishing ascension of President Donald J. Trump. While some seek comfort in the belief that Trump's election was an aberration, the truth is he is the latest in a bipartisan queue of fanatics and hate peddlers who have tapped into America's deepest insecurities. So, Larry, there is a lot to unpack here, <laughs> but let's start with Joe McCarthy. Can you give us some sense of McCarthy's background and how he began his remarkable political rise? So he began his life on a farm in a little community called Grand Chute outside of Appleton, Wisconsin. And that setting and everything about it dictated his take on the world forever. He partly had wonderful farm-bred values of sort of what was right and wrong in America, but he also had a sense of insecurity that there were somehow elites pulling the strings for what was really happening on his farm and in his part of the world. And he grew up as somebody who left school after the eighth grade and went out and decided he was going to try to make it as an entrepreneur. He became a chicken tycoon, having tens of thousands of hens, tens of thousands of eggs, and tens of thousands of disastrous losses when a virus hit his empire. Um, at age 16, he's starting this entrepreneurial career. At age 20, it all crashes and burns around him. And so he decides he's finally going to go back to high school. And if anybody ever doubted that Joe McCarthy was a smart guy, he completed four years of high school with great grades in a single year. And he decided then to launch his college life and his ambition to show that he could, despite his upbringing on a poor farm in a place that nobody in the world had ever heard of, that he could make it and that his name could become one that goes into the American history books, which it did. So what is at the root of those intense insecurities that come to bear in his life? 
So at the root of them is something that I think that uh, somebody like you who knows more than anybody in the world about LBJ can relate to. Um, the same way that LBJ carried a certain kind of chip on his shoulder forever to show that he was equal to the Kennedys and equal to the Harvards, and Joe McCarthy had precisely that kind of chip. In, instead of, however, being a populist in terms of um, trying to embrace progressive values, Joe McCarthy tried that out in his early days and his first run for office. He was an avid New Dealer, a left-wing supporter of Franklin Roosevelt. And the problem with that was that that just didn't wash in his part of rural Wisconsin. So Joe McCarthy was not going to let anything like political ideology or beliefs get in his way. And I think quietly in the middle of the night one night, he changed his party registration to Republican. He changed his ideology to appealing to the most conservative wing of the Republican Party in Wisconsin called stalwart Republicans. And he totally remade himself with no sense of shame. So McCarthyism in its nascent form begins in Wheeling, West Virginia in 1950. Talk about that occasion and how it came about. So it began, as you say, in Wheeling, West Virginia, in February of 1950, on a night that for every Republican party in America is their biggest fundraising opportunity. It is the Lincoln Day dinner celebrating their patron saint, Abraham Lincoln. And Joe McCarthy, fitting for somebody who was as inconsequential senator as he was, uh, got invited to the burg of Wheeling, West Virginia, to deliver the speech. Nobody knew much about Joe McCarthy. They just knew they were getting a U.S. senator. And McCarthy goes to Wheeling with a briefcase containing two speeches. One speech is a snoozer on national housing policy that he actually knew something about. And had he delivered that speech 70 years later, you and I wouldn't be here talking about Joe McCarthy. Instead, he gave the second speech in his briefcase. And that was a barn burner of a speech accusing the State Department of being rife with Soviet spies. He waved his, in his hand that night a copy of that speech saying, I have in my hand the list of 205 subversives in the State Department. And it was a brilliant speech. And nobody ever saw it, so they didn't know that there really wasn't a list of 205. And the press initially was slow to pick up on it. But within a couple days, Joe McCarthy was precisely where he wanted to be, which was on the front page of every newspaper in America and on the way to making his newly adopted cause of anti-communism into a crusade. So where was Joe McCarthy's political career when he goes to Wheeling and why does he have those two speeches on hand? It seems like it's very clear that his his political career it is, is, is at a crossroads and he has a decision to make. And that decision predicates the speech he ultimately makes in Wheeling. So to call it at a crossroads is being kind to him. His political career was in fact on the rocks. It looked like in 1950, the shot of his being reelected in 1952 was nil. It looked like in 1950, the thought of anybody having any clue who that junior senator from Wisconsin was, was non-existent. And he was looking for a spotlight. He was looking for an issue that would put him on the map. 
and he found precisely the right issue. He understood the fear in America at one of the hottest points of the Cold War when children were about to be taught how to duck and cover under their desks in the event of a nuclear explosion, when we had seen the Rosenbergs exposed as spies, when we watched China become Red China, we were afraid. And Joe McCarthy knew how to play to those fears. And unlike the anti-communists who came before him, he knew that just charging treason was not enough. You had to name the traitors. And the only thing better than naming the traitors is if you didn't have those names was to say you had the list of the names that you were waving around of all those 205 traitors. So after Wheeling, he gets on a train and he goes out west. And, and, and that list of 205 narrows down. And the, the story around the, the list that he has becomes nebulous. Can you talk a little bit about that? So I want to tell you briefly uh, my favorite sense. There, was a, there were a million questions raised after the speech. What does the number 205 mean? Why does it keep shifting? Why is it sometimes 57? And my favorite story, suggesting the whimsy of where his numbers came from, was that he was having lunch one day and somebody put in front of him a bottle of Heinz 57 sauce and he loved that number and that became one of the numbers he used on that trip west. Every stop it was different. Every stop he had a new excuse. Ooh, I'm sorry, I left my speech in my briefcase and I left my briefcase on the train or in the car. And it was extraordinary because he knew something about how the media in America worked. He knew that if you were going to unveil shaky numbers like his, it was much better to do it when you were out in Reno, Nevada, or Wheeling, West Virginia, or all the other little towns that he was visiting along his tour, where the reporters who covered him during that tour were not people who covered the State Department, and they wouldn't know how to fact check the information that they were getting. He knew that if you gave people the new charge in the new numbers a half an hour before their deadline that they weren't going to have time to fact check it and to call the other side and to say, what's the real story? He was brilliant at exploiting his information on how the press worked and the weaknesses about how the press did things. He knew one last thing, and this is a message that continues to resonate today. He knew that if one number or one charge was dis proven, rather than apologizing or explaining how you got it, the next day you lob a fresh bombshell. And the story about the disproving yesterday charge is on page 37, and the new bombshell is back where he wanted to be on page one. That sounds very familiar today, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what does McCarthyism look like between 1950 and 1954? So it looks like a synonym for reckless accusation. It looks like a synonym for political double dealing. It looks like anything that you can suggest that sort of violates our basic sense of fairness and how things are done became absorbed in this notion of McCarthyism. It was much bigger than Joe McCarthy, and yet he became the a guy who embodied it in a way that was extraordinary. I'm convinced if there hadn't been Joe McCarthy, that we might still have had a movement out there, but we might have called it 
in honor of a famous Texan deism or deism in honor of Martin Dees, who ran the House Un-American Activities Committee. We might have called it Nixonism. There were lots of, we might have even called it Trumanism because Harry Truman, in a way to try to preempt Joe McCarthy, set up loyalty tests that were, in a word, outrageous. And there were all kinds of people who were saved from having their name turned into an ism by having Joe McCarthy three times more outrageous than they were. So what does the political landscape look like at this point? I mean, we've seen in, in the last several years, Republicans line up full staff behind Donald Trump. But what, what does it look like as McCarthy's movement begins to gain traction? How do the Republicans coalesce around Joe McCarthy? So if I were going to be um, cute about it, I would say to understand what the political movement like then looked like, just read today's headlines. But to be more specific, uh, because he came first, it looked like lots of people having doubts about him. There was a senator from Maryland named Millard Tidings who took on Joe McCarthy shortly after his famous wheeling speech that we were talking about. And a committee was set up, a subcommittee was set up called the Tidings Committee to investigate McCarthy's charges. And Tidings labeled McCarthy a fraud, and he labeled his movement a witch hunt. And for that courage in taking on Joe McCarthy, Tidings was rewarded with a Republican challenger I'm sorry, a, a uh, Republican, a heated Republican primary and a Republican challenger in November of 1950 that came from nowhere, that had nothing to his credit other than Joe McCarthy and his moneyed interests from places like the state of Texas behind him. It was the kind of a blitzkrieg campaign that in those days, Senators didn't run for their own election, and nobody considered running it for somebody else's election. McCarthy came in, it worked, and that sent a shockwave across the U.S. Senate, not just to Democrats, but to fellow Republicans. If you challenge Joe McCarthy, beware of the bulldozer. And that was the kind of effect he had. He had enablers in moneyed interests across the country, and again, we now know from new files that have been opened up for this book um, that most of that money, the biggest fund funding came from the Lone Star Estate. We can see that he had as enablers his fellow senators. The Republicans weren't about to take him on because they had such a narrow margin when they finally got a majority that they weren't going to let that margin uh, be threatened by taking on one of their own. We had a president in Dwight Eisenhower who, from the time he was elected in 1952 to the Army McCarthy hearings in 1954, he stood on the sidelines. He hated Joe McCarthy every bit as much as Harry Truman had. He had his brother, Milton Eisenhower, whispering in his ear, saying, give up a small part of your enormous popularity to take on this demagogue, Joe McCarthy, and Eisenhower sat back and said, oh, no, I'm going to wait for McCarthy to do himself in. And that would have looked like a wise judgment were not lives being ruined in the interim. 
But the number one enabler in this whole process, I have to say, is American people. By 1954, by the start of the Army McCarthy hearings, Joe McCarthy was the second most popular politician in America. A full 50% of Americans said he was doing a great job. And those are numbers that Donald Trump and very few other politicians ever see. The only one who was more popular at that moment was President Eisenhower. So we had a country buying into this. This was not, we think of McCarthyism today as being something outlandish and fringe, but it was us. Yeah, and, and just as he had 50% support, uh, only 29% of Americans opposed him in 1954, which was, is remarkable. It was shocking. And I got to say, if you believe the common uh, popular culture view of the history of McCarthyism, and you saw the wonderful movie Good Night and Good Luck, mm. you would think that it was a heroic broadcast journalist named Edward R. Murrow who slayed the dragon. Um, the truth was, Murrow and CBS were looking at those kinds of numbers over the years, and it wasn't until very late in the process that Murrow got involved. And it was only a few brave journalists and a few often short-lived politicians who took him on. And if there was one journalist who belonged there as the hero, it was not, as Edward R. Murrow himself acknowledged, it was not Murrow, it was a guy who was back then the most popular columnist in America named Andrew Drew Pearson. Mm. So why did it take Edward R. Murrow so long to take on this demagogue? As you pointed out, Drew Pearson was vociferous in his criticism of McCarthy. There were other newspaper columnists who were taking McCarthy on as well, but Murrow has a platform that they don't, and yet he's pretty late to the party in condemning McCarthy. What took so long? So any brilliant historians or budding authors who are listening to this, um, I think somebody ought to do a brilliant book on Edward R. Murrow answering that question, uh, because I think Murrow, by his own standards, McCarthy was the perfect foil for him. He represented everything that Murrow despised. And when Murrow took him on, he did it with a, an authenticity and a compelling narrative that showed he had picked just the right target. But why he waited so late, I think, was partly a function of his bosses at CBS who knew that it was dangerous taking on McCarthy until McCarthy showed himself more vulnerable. I think it was partly that uh, Murrow himself had some doubts about whether he, uh, even as ennobled the position he was in, had the strength to take him on and win. Um, and I think it's partly a mystery. And I think it's one that if Murrow could rewrite any piece of his own history, it would be taking on Joe McCarthy earlier. What about Eisenhower? Uh, Eisenhower was also late to the party, as you, as you suggest. His brother uh, recommended that he weigh in on this a lot sooner than he did. He finally does in 1954, and we'll get to that in a moment. But what took Eisenhower so long? And do you think he would have rethought taking on McCarthy if he had the benefit of historical hindsight? So he never rethought it in all of his memoirs. Um, and he had the perfect opportunity to do it, to say, you know, to admit a mistake and say, I should have li listened to uh, Milton, who was a very smart guy and his favorite brother. 
but I think that he waited so long. There were two schools of thought. There's been, uh, there have been a number of books written about the so-called Eisenhower hidden hand, suggesting Eisenhower wasn't the uh, doddering grandfather figure that he looked like to much of America who spent his days golfing and not taking on serious policy, but he did it in a slow and deliberate way. And he waited, rather than taking on an enemy at their most powerful moment, this smart ex-general waited till they showed a vulnerability. And as I say, entire books have been written saying that that was a brilliant strategy. And I say, if it was brilliant, explain that to the families of McCarthy victims who killed themselves or whose careers and lives were ruined and explain how that delay was justifiable. I think it just wasn't. And I think that it was the hidden hand, uh, in this case, the empty glove. Mm. And it was Eisenhower showing that he just, for all of his courage during World War II, I hate to accuse a, a war hero of being a coward, but when it came to Joe McCarthy, he was cowardly. Your book breaks new ground insofar as you had access to records that heretofore have not been seen. What was the greatest revelation in the records that you dug up on Joe McCarthy? So I want to say that I wrote this book in part because in my last book, for my last book on Bobby Kennedy, of the 450 people I interviewed, the most intriguing to me was Bobby's widow, Ethel. And Ethel Kennedy said something to me about Joe McCarthy that stuck with me forever. And it was, Joe McCarthy might have been a monster to much of America, but to us, he was just plain good fun. And Bobby Kennedy, the iconic liberal figure in American politics, cut his teeth as a Joe McCarthy protege. He started life as a cold warrior along with McCarthy. And so I began this book trying to understand this other side that there must be to Joe McCarthy that made 50% of America fall in love with him and made two icons of mine, Ethel and Bobby Kennedy, fall in love with him. And the papers that I had access to, so 60 years ago, McCarthy's widow donates to his alma mater, Marquette University, all of his personal and professional papers. And if you read any of the scores of biographies on McCarthy or McCarthyism, Somewhere tucked in the acknowledgments or in the preface, they say, there was one treasure trove that got away from us. We couldn't get access to those personal and professional papers. And that's because those were under the control of McCarthy's family. For some reason, and I would love to tell you it's because I'm irresistibly charming, but that's clearly not it. <laughs> For some reason, McCarthy's family, just at the moment that I had given up on seeing those papers, I get an email from the archivist at Marquette saying to our surprise, and I'm sure to your surprise, they've not only granted you access to those papers, but it's exclusive access, which means the day you stop looking, they go under lock and key again. And I want to tell you just a couple things for the better and for the worse that was in those papers in terms of Joe McCarthy. For the better was that Joe McCarthy had said when he was first running for office that he had been a tail gunner when he was in the Marines during World War II. And it actually became his moniker, Tail Gunner Joe. CBS did an entire documentary mocking him by calling him a tail gunner and saying, this is a guy who never went up in the air, who was an, a land-based intelligence officer, and he lied. This was his first big lie in calling himself a tail gunner. Well, in those 
professional and personal files were McCarthy's day-by-day handwritten diary from the South Pacific. And yes, his official assignment was as a land-based intelligence officer, but his own diary and letters from all of his comrades in arms in the South Pacific showed that he volunteered for duty as a tail gunner, that he came under enemy fire. And he did all this not because he had to. He could have stayed safely on the ground. He did it because he thought he was going to be a Marine and he ought to be doing this. And the only thing more surprising to me than that this consummate liar told a truth Hmm. about his military record was that he never unveiled those diaries when people were making fun of him as a tail gunner. He had the evidence right there. And why he didn't do it, I'm not quite sure, but I think it actually says something good about Joe McCarthy. Not just that a a liar was a truth teller, but that he had enough pride in his service as a Marine and in the medals that he was awarded that if the press and much of the public didn't believe them, the hell with them, that he was going to not embarrass himself by digging up diaries and letters. And there's one other lesson in that, by the way, which is if you embellish and lie often enough, when you're telling the truth, we'll never believe you. Right. So that was McCarthy for the worst. Uh, That was McCarthy for the better. McCarthy for the worst in his files was it showed case after case of him doing even more grievous damage to the truth and to his targets. It showed him having secret files on everybody from Drew Pearson to every enemy in the Senate. He dug up dirt even beyond what he used on everybody that he could. Everything we expected about every one of the techniques of McCarthyism were there in what should be a library of McCarthyism. And unfortunately, you're going to have to take my word for it for now because they're under lock and key. But the, they're, they're there in the book and they're there in the files and they show that Joe McCarthy's uh, place in history as America's archetypal demagogue was well-earned. What makes McCarthy tick? What, what does he really want out of all this? So, great question. Um, I would, the easy and facile answer would, would be to say that he was just an opportunist and what he wants is power. But he had that early in this crusade. I think what actually made him tick later on was he believed all the embellishments that he told. He believed that there was a communist behind every pillar in the State Department, and he believed that it was going to take somebody who didn't care about what was politically correct to stand up and call out those traitors and to be this um, lightning rod. I think he loved being controversial. I think he loved being in the spotlight. I think as a farm boy from Wisconsin, the idea that he was this national figure, again, the same way that happened with LBJ, proved to be some sort of an elixir for him. And I think he was delighted with everything that was happening to his career until the Army McCarthy hearings. You say he believed it and he contrived these lies to get other people to believe it too. Is, is, that, is that a fair characterization? It is a fair characterization, but his dream was to come up with a 24-carat spy and his version of a Fuchs or a Rosenberg. 
the truth was all the 24 carat spies had been exposed long before Joe McCarthy got there. And if he ever found one, it might have been in the dark, tripping over one accidentally. But in terms of his methods, he was using dated material. But he started believing all the things that were coming into his office, and he believed his dated records. And I think that, the, that it is extraordinary to me how somebody as smart and as savvy as Joe McCarthy could become a true believer in a cause that was built on paper-thin evidence, but he did. So you mentioned, Larry, that McCarthy sees his height in, in early 1954 uh, when you say McCarthy became an ism. Uh, but that same year, he meets his Waterloo. What is his demise? So his demise is by taking on a target that was too big to bully. And that target was the U.S. Army. He accuses the Army and specifically a place called Fort Monmouth, a, an Army um, Command and Control Center in New Jersey, of being rife with spies of having a nest that Julius Rosenberg had planted there. And in the early days, the Secretary of the Army and senior generals coddled him. They said, oh, if you say there are spies there, we're going to look hard. Oh, if you say those people specifically are spies, while we're waiting to investigate them, we're going to suspend them. We will take you, wine you, dine you, we'll even coddle your aid um, his most famous aide, everybody might know, is a guy named Roy Cohn. And Roy Cohn's sidekick was a guy named G. David Shine. And Shine was a young military recruit who dodged the military as long as he could and then went in. And McCarthy tried to get, at Roy Cohn's urging, Shine to get all this kind of special treatment. And he got it. But there was a point where McCarthy pushed too hard and the army started pushing back. There was a point where McCarthy pushed too hard and the commander-in-chief, Dwight Eisenhower, finally acted like the hero with a real backbone that he had shown in World War II. And there was a point at which in the Army McCarthy hearings where his own former subcommittee was investigating him, where the American people finally could see this character up close on TV in the most popular televised hearings Ever. I, I can't remember whether they ranked first or second behind the Kefauer organized crime hearings, but they were every household in America seemed to be tuned in, tuned into Joe McCarthy. And instead of looking like this heroic farm boy, he looked like the town bully. And when the general started pushing back, it proved that they really were too big to bully. So the start of the hearings, Gallup says he's at a 50% favorability. By June, at the end of hearings, his numbers had plummeted to 34%. And something magical started happening then. When this guy no longer looked invulnerable, it wasn't just Dwight Eisenhower who developed courage. It was his fellow senators. By December, they voted not to censure him because they never used that word, but it amounted to a censure. It was a condemnation. And they basically said, you are an outlaw and we want nothing to do with you. And from the day of that censure vote in 1954 to his death in 1957, Joe McCarthy was a defeated man. He was still a U.S. senator, but we now know from another set of records that were made available for this book, which were all of his medical records from
from Bethesda Naval Hospital. Can I tell a quick story here? Please. So the story is just, it's a personal and an indulgent story. But one day, my wife and I were out very early in the morning at our home on Cape Cod, taking the dog for a walk. And we go by the driveway, and we see an enormous brown box sitting at the driveway. And my reaction was, what the heck did UPS leave the box just in the driveway? And my wife's reaction was, this could be something important. Let's stop the walk and go see what they are. And I said, no, we're going to do our walk. We come back, and it turns out that those were a 1,000 pages of records that I had been begging the military for for a year. They were all of his records at Bethesda Naval Hospital. He had been treated there repeatedly since he became a senator in 1946. He died there in 1957. And those punctured the myth of what he died of. It turns out that the official coroner's report and all the press reports were interesting, but not true. I sat down with a crew that included the recently retired dean of Harvard Medical School and the recently retired editor-in-chief of the New England Journal of Medicine, and we poured through every page of, the, of those records. What they showed was from, that McCarthy had always been a drinker, but he became a serious alcoholic from the moment of his censure. They showed that even though the official records said that he died of acute hepatitis, he in fact died of acute alcoholism. They had by his bedside for the last two days of his life something extraordinary, which was an orderly taking a note of everything that happened to him, every shot he got, every outrageous thing that he screamed to his nurses. And he was going through tremors. He was going through delirium. He died a really horrific death. And we have documented records of every moment of that. And it makes him into no matter what kind of a bully he was for most of his career, it makes him to an exceedingly tragic figure for the last years of his life. Larry, if there is one moment that represents a turning point for Joe McCarthy, what would it be? So it was the moment, I would say, that he hired Roy Cohn. And I call that a turning point. Joe McCarthy was the boss, and Roy Cohn was a brilliant, arrogant young lawyer from New York who McCarthy brought in when he took over the committee chairmanship, his subcommittee chairmanship in 1954. And what happened at that moment, I said in 1954, it was actually 1953. And at that moment, even though Roy Cohn was taking orders from McCarthy, all the worst instincts of Joe McCarthy were reinforced by this arrogant young aide, Roy Cohn. Joe McCarthy's second choice for that position, the guy he almost certainly would have hired had it not been Roy Cohn, was a guy named Bobby Kennedy. What would have been different in his career had he brought on, on Bobby Kennedy, we don't know. But I call it the turning point because McCarthy had two paths he could follow when he finally had the power of the gavel. One was a path dictated by... Joe McCarthy and Roy Cohn, and the other was the path that Bobby Kennedy might have reinforced in Joe McCarthy's better instincts. Larry, why is America so susceptible to demagoguery? Here we are with all of our high ideals, and yet we seem vulnerable to this kind of lowest common denominator politics. Why? So without passing the buck, I want to say it's the same reason people everywhere in the world are susceptible to demagoguery. 
that we want to, whether we're sophisticated Americans with a 200-year history of a great democracy, or whether we're people in Russia with a history of autocracy, um, the fact is that we all have things that we are afraid of. In Joe McCarthy's era, that was the Soviet Union, which was a legitimate threat, and that was the threat of communism. In today's era, it is economic insecurity, which unfortunately still afflicts a good part of America. So we all start out with fears. We are all susceptible to really brilliant, silver-tongued bullies who come along and offer us an easy way of explaining those fears. One easy explanation is it's not just the Soviet Union, it's the spies in the State Department. Another explanation might be that it's the immigrants streaming across the border who are responsible for everything going wrong in our economic insecurity and everything else in our lives. Um, fear, insecurity, easy answers, all of that makes our world, whether we're in America or Brazil or Russia, vulnerable to demagogues, but there's a good news story here. My book is ultimately not just the story of America and its unique strain of demagoguery. It is the story of our triumph over bullies throughout our history. Whether it was Huey Long or George Wallace or any demagogue that you might want to pick from today, in the end, the archetypal demagogue Joe McCarthy proved that given enough rope, demagogues in our history have always hung themselves. Is it inevitable? I hope it is. You mentioned Roy Cohn a moment ago. Um, Roy Cohn, of course, being the aide to Joe McCarthy, a pivotal aide to Joe McCarthy. He was also a mentor to Donald Trump. So there's this through line from McCarthyism to the Trump era. Talk about the, the role that Roy Cohn played for Donald Trump. So he gave a Roy Cohn refined version of the McCarthy playbook to his young mentee, Donald Trump. And that was a playbook that said, I don't know what we can say on this tape um, in terms of people's anatomy, but it said, if somebody kicks you, you kick him twice as hard in a place that's going to hurt. <laughs> it said, if one of your charges is disproven, you lob a fresh one and you do it on a reporter's deadline. It said, if the news is bad, blame the newsman. It was McCarthy and McCarthyism boiled down to simple aphorisms, and there has never been a more apt pupil for all this stuff than our president. Is Donald Trump in any way unique as an American demagogue? Or does he fit the pattern? So what makes him unique is, he didn't just get elected senator from Wisconsin or governor from Louisiana or Alabama. He is the president. And that gives him a lever of powers that makes him unique in American history. And I think he has exercised them astutely in getting elected and staying in office. And we'll see what happens. Have we ever had another demagogue elected to the presidency, Larry? No, we've had people, some people point to Andrew Johnson, some people point to, there are a lot of figures in America that if you didn't like, you will say they're a demagogue. I'm sure there are conservatives who think Franklin Roosevelt was a demagogue and liberals who think that Richard Nixon was one. Um, 
My answer is no. To me, the label of demagogue is going beyond just exercising power in a way that we may not like and that even borders at times on being ruthless. It is really ignoring a lot of very basic values of fair play and more important than anything, maybe ignoring the importance and primacy of truth-telling. What is the greatest lesson that we can learn from the rise and fall of Senator Joe McCarthy? It is to recognize that as tempting as these simple answers are, uh, the simpler the answer, the less likely it is to be a truthful answer. And it is to realize that the truth does matter. And I want to give you a third and very self-serving answer. As a lifelong journalist, it is the importance of recognizing that journalism generally is not fake news and that the only people out there in our world who really have the time to sift through all of this is this wonderful fourth estate of journalism. And I think we're seeing better journalism in our world or in America today than we have ever seen. The author is Larry Tai, and his exceptional book is Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy. My thanks to Larry Tai, to our sponsors, the Moody Foundation and St. David's Healthcare, and of course, to you for joining us. You can purchase a signed copy of Larry Tai's book, Demagogue, The Life and Long Shadow of Senator Joe McCarthy, or any of the books covered in previous episodes through our online store at lbjstore.com. If you've enjoyed this episode, subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Mark Uptegrove. See you next time.